Neil has mentioned that we've been talking about, or we've been using this thing called the narrative lectionary, which is this way of going through the Bible in, in, a, in a, almost like it's a story, a narrative, hence the name. And so we get, the beginning of the Bible is insane, right? It's just so, <laughs> insane story after insane story. This is the continuation of that. Um, the Israelites, like I said, they're freed from bondage in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're at the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God begins to give Moses these specific orders about what to do moving forward. And so Moses goes, Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's up in the mountain for a while, 40 days or so, as they say. And people, they start getting antsy, and then they demand to Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, who is like the priest, make a god for us, they say. So there's like a lot going on here um, that we could talk about. But I wanted to focus today, do a sort of meditation for us on um, really the first half of that first line of the reading that Casey did, which is, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, right, which is this implied in there, this sense that the Israelites were becoming restless, that they had this issue with Moses being gone for, for so long that they started to feel these things that needed to uh, be expressed somehow. Right? And to me, this reading says something about patience and expectation about uh, anxiety, about what it might mean for us to, to wait for the Lord or wait for things. For those of you who are like internet people, which I assume is most of us, uh, you might have seen this article going around on the Facebooks and stuff, the Twitters. Sorry, I don't know I'm talking like I'm 90. With, uh, <laughs> You might have seen on the interwebs this, uh, this article entitled, I Used to Be a Human Being. It was written by this guy, Andrew Sullivan. Uh, and it, he explores and laments our present sort of smartphone, internet, what he calls always wired world. Right? This description he gives, which I like, is it's like an algorithmic wave washing over us. Um, well, we've forgotten, he thinks, and lost our ability and need to be present in a given moment, present to the very things around us at that moment, to the people around us, and mostly present to ourselves. And what I found you know, particularly interesting about what he was saying, because technological critiques are, are always there, it's, it's not uncommon. Um, and I just want to also preface and say I'm not an anti-technology person. I had the first iPhone ever. I'm an early adopter. I'm obsessed with these things. But um, what I found particularly interesting about what he said is a way of connecting this modern state with the state of modern religion as well. So he says, he writes this in the article, the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. So by this argument, technology is a, becomes a, a god to us in our lives, uh, not because technology is like answering and fulfilling the deepest desires of our soul, but because it makes it, it, makes it easy for us to deny these desires and forget them, to uh, forget that they actually are within us. For Sullivan, uh, we've forgotten this, this deepness, this deep yearning inside of us, this thing that we have, um, largely because of our inability to be alone with ourselves. Right? And when you're alone with yourself, that's when you sort of have to uh, confront your needs, the feelings, the truths you have within you that I think uh, 
in a lot of moments we feel kind of trying to punch their way out a little bit and we're very good at just kind of like pushing them back down and this is something I you know to use myself as a prime example of uh, this modern phenomenon um, it's this is really true for me as a pastor my job is very communal obviously I, I it's often with people but I actually spend the vast majority of my time alone in my work because uh, like we don't have a root and branch office so I don't like go to an office and you know have a break room where I see coworkers. I, I spend most of my time working alone uh, in my sad uh, house by myself and I found it increasingly intolerable for me to deal with silence so my, my routine is basically I wake up immediately uh, get on my phone and find like a podcast to listen to so I wake up turn this podcast on so as the podcast is going I go wash up I do the things that you do in the morning make coffee all the while no headphones no one's home <laughs> no one's home so I can do whatever hell I want yeah I wish I could um, but <laughs> I also don't shower <laughs> And then when I'm not, I'm, and I go to my, I do work at my computer. When I'm not at my computer, as, as soon as I get up, I grab the phone, take it with me to whatever I'm doing. Um, and my day is proceeded to be ultimately always connected, distracted in some capacity. Because somehow the silence of my mind seems unbearable to me. Uh, I'm gonna, I apologize in advance for the very crass nature of this analogy, but I just, it, I think it's important to illustrate how deep this can go. Um, so like, you know, when I'm on the John, the crapper as it were, and uh, I've done my duty there, finished finish my, my, ta my, ta <laughs> finish my task, my godly task, uh, just so that I don't have to like be in silence for the 20 seconds it would take to clean up after myself, I will frantically search for something because you, know, you, you can't do it with your phone in your hand. You gotta put the phone down. I hope most of you do that. Um, you gotta put the phone down. And for those like 20, 30 seconds, I'm like, I need to have something happening or, or I'll go insane. So I'm like sitting there, sometimes like 10 minutes looking for the right song or podcast, play it and then clean up, you know? And uh, I actually confessed this to um, a woman I was trying to date. <laughs> And we're not dating. So, um, but that's, a, I mean, it's like a little microcosm of the, that kind of, the, the insanity that goes along with, I think, a lot of the, the way that we experience the world today. Uh, another example that I, I found really kind of fascinating to me was, uh, uh, you guys know who Vin Scully is? Yeah. I know Matt knows, no. Jeremy? Wow. Okay, Vin Scully is this baseball announcer. He's a uh, broadcaster for the Dodgers, and he's been doing, he's been broadcasting Dodger games since like 19, so he's like 86, it's been forever. It's basically since baseball. He broadcast Jackie Robinson's first game. It's like, that's how long he's been doing it. And so, this was Vin Scully's last year. He's retiring. It's a huge deal in LA. Uh, I grew up, I grew up hearing his voice broadcast all around Los Angeles. Um, my whole life, or most of my childhood. And so as he's retiring, there's all these like pieces being written, think pieces about what Vince Scully has done and the famous calls he's, he's given throughout history. So I started watching all these videos, right? It's like home run in the World Series, like a perfect game. These clips of uh, Vince Scully calling these really momentous 
uh, moments in baseball. And as I'm watching it, I realize that like I've become so accustomed to like skipping through a video just for the one little thing that I'm doing that. Like I'm going to just right where the home run is. And I'm forgetting that the whole point of me listening here is to like hear Vin Scully kind of talk the whole time. That's like what this clip is about. And the first time I did that, I was like, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm supposed to be, and like about 10 clips in, I'm still doing it. I realized like, holy shit, everything is like a vine to me. I can't even like bring myself to remember to like watch it. And these clips, it's not like I'm watching like a 20 minute thing. It's like 30 second clips, 45 second clips. And I still have a hard time doing that. And that's, it, it dawned on me that that, if Vince Scully was like the voice of God, then I'm skipping around, sort of missing what that might sound like. Learning to just kind of be um, with ourselves in these mundane daily rituals like I'm describing, or even in like very intentional isolation like meditation or certain uh, forms of prayer, I think makes real and present for us what Christians for a long time have um, always believed that the human spirit is trying to call out with. Right? That, that the human spirit, if it really knew itself, would cry out in confession, would cry out in this, uh, n- this need for salvation, this need for help. Um, you guys have heard of Louis C.K., I'm guessing. Uh, and he has this way of describing it where he says um, that this thing that we try to avoid, this voice that we try to like push down, it, um, it's this voice that says that underneath in your life that we have this thing that he calls the forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're all alone, right? And he sort of says that's why like people text and drive even though they're like killing people and people are dying because we don't want to be alone to feel that forever empty, even for a second in the car, which uh, I have to confess is, you know, I do that sometimes, right? And so, that knowledge that it's all for nothing, you're alone. I mean, it's uh, incredibly pe- sad and pessimistic way to put it. It's very Louis. But I think it's also one way to look at what, again, this Christian understanding is, is trying to say about the way that our spirit experiences the world. That um, maybe almost you could see that acknowledgement as a confession of our sin, a confession that we have this separation from God. And so again, the answer comes on the other side, right? Salvation, faith, hope, love, and those types of things. The Israelites didn't have uh, phones, obviously, or the internet, and, you know, they get ragged on a lot, but 40 days is a long-ass time, you know? Like, if any of you disappeared for 40 days, I'd be like, they're probably dead, you know? I'd be worried about you. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't uh, blame them for getting a little antsy, but the one thing that comes to mind for me, as I think about this story, is um, to also remember that religious experience has these two depths to them at all times. One is this depth of the alone, the solitude, the meditation, and the other is this crazy, transcendent, amazing religious experience that a lot of us perhaps have been l- lucky enough to experience in our lives. Right? That's all part of the spectrum. And the Israelites experience that crazy side, like all of it if you think about this story, right? They say they saw the craziest shit anyone could see go down, like in Egypt, 
again, frogs, rivers of blood, babies dying, which is not good, but you know, they saw these things. They walked through again, and the, the Red Sea parts for them, and they walk through it. They're witnessing this amazing power of God. And right before they actually do this thing with the calf, um, what is said in, in the text prior to what we just heard is that God actually at, the, at Sinai decides that God has to like show them one more time just how powerful God is. And so God comes in this cloud with like lightning. It's like a laser show. Uh, and God says specifically, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you forevermore. He's saying that to Moses, right? So God is saying, I need to do this crazy stuff again so that the people can witness it and remember that they better pay attention or listen to what I'm saying. And even after all that stuff, uh, it's not enough, they forget. What needs to be remembered, I think, is at the point, at the point of this beginning of uh, the Bible and Exodus, this is what's sort of becoming, this, this whole thing is kind of starting to become a religion or actually will become eventually a number of religions. Who, a religion meaning that there is a set of rules and rituals and all that kind of stuff. But that stuff as it isn't actually there yet. Moses goes up to receive those things, right? The point of Moses going up to the mountain is that God tells Moses, like, yo, these are the laws. You got to build this ark. It's got to look like this. This is how you do a sacrifice. Um, the Sabbath should be kept like this. God is, it's like nine chapters of really boring text about rituals and laws that people are supposed to keep. And so during that time that Moses is up there, that's when they, the people down there, the Israelites, start getting that itch, right? That, that need for uh, distraction, the need to find God in a tangible and finite form, to celebrate as they do after the calf is made. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if it was an orgy, but it looked like an orgy in Ten Commandments or the movie that the old Charlton Heston, at least when I was 12, it looked like an orgy, uh, in revel in this transcendent, crazy celebration and experience again that they had... Um, come to be accustomed to understanding their relationship to God as being like. And so they can't, in other words, wait for Moses because they start feeling that isolation, that, uh, that forever empty, that uh, sense of needing something kind of punching out of them. And without any guidance in how to deal with it, without any rules and rituals, and without a sense of um, an oriented religious life, they go back to the one thing that they've known so far, to try to recapture this felt experience with God. The most common thing you hear preached about this text in churches is that uh, there is a danger of false idols, that the calf represents an idol for us. We, we ought not worship these idols. And I think as much as my, uh, myself wants to be like, I don't want to preach what is commonly preached, like the collective wisdom there is true, right? We, need to, we do need to be reminded time to time, often, that uh, idols are there for us uh, in our lives, that they are false idols, many of them are false idols, that they are things that we think will make us fulfilled and happy, but actually will not. 
But instead of the usual suspects that are trotted out, money and sex and power and that sort of stuff, I think we might come to look at the desire itself a little bit more, focus on that part. Right? Not so much on the calf, but on the question of why we wanted the calf in the fir first place. What this all suggests, I think, is what I'm trying to say, is that um, to deal ourselves, to deal with ourselves, to unshackle ourselves to some degree, which we can't, I'm not gonna throw away my phone, I guarantee you that much, but to unplug as much as we can, so we, we can't just like reach out to try to touch this golden calf whenever we feel like it, which is all the time. We need not only unplug for a minute and be able to kind of sit with who we are and what might come out when we do that. We also need some guidance doing that. We need some, I think, ritualization. We need some instruction. Sullivan, who is a Catholic, who wrote the article I mentioned, um, because he's Catholic, points to things like the rosary and benediction as like felt rituals of, that might be helpful for us dealing with our isolation. Um, some perspective of what things like prayer and meditation and confession ought to look like, what they can do for us. Uh, this is a bit of a, a, a primer for the retreat next week as we're gonna explore some of those things. Um, but looking at what these practices can do to help us be fully present with one another as we're eating together, hopefully have brave conversations with one another. It seems uh, really clear to me that the constant challenge of modern faith is not just the conceptual part, not like, oh, how does God exist or how can we prove or whatever. Uh, the consistent issue that I'm finding for myself and people that I work with um, in the spiritual world is a consistent practice of doing things and doing things that just might make real for us the stuff that is hard to understand. I don't think I've ever read like a spiritual leader or guru or someone like that who's ever been like to the proverbial mountaintop, came back down and never, actually, never had something that you had to do to get there. <laughs> Right? Um, the guru doesn't come back and is like, here's one line of truth, take it, and you feel good. No, it's like, if you wanna, if you wanna get there, you have to meditate three times a day, and like, what, you know, like, there's always an instruction. Of course, uh, so what, I, what I'm feeling in myself, what I'm feeling in our collective culture is both our incapacity to get in touch with a true and deep inner self, a true and deep inner need, but also a struggle to discipline ourselves enough to uh, overcome that other part. The overcoming of that part is not like you read Andrew Sullivan's article or any of the other many people who've written stuff like this and it's like, okay, that's great. I wanna be unplugged too, I'm gonna get off Instagram. Like, that's not, like that alone is not how it works, right? It takes the doing, right? The instruction that comes from God in this story, um, the things that a religious community can do together and teach each other uh, that helps us actually change some aspect of our life. So I think that's what we need to be thinking about, what we need to do. I don't have an answer for you today again because I think we're gonna talk more about this retreat, but it's something that I want us to consider.
And as we do that, I want to open up the floor to uh, for us to share reactions to this as you please. But I wanted to ask for a specific kind of story because I think it might be strange and interesting to do this. Um, if you have a story that you could think of of a time that you were just bored out of your mind with no escape, I would love to hear that story. I want to I share briefly. I'll get the ball rolling um, with you. I came to Chicago in 2009 to go to grad school. So before that, there was a prospective student's day, right? The day that you come to visit the university. And um, I had never been to Chicago before. I was 23 at the time. Holy shit. I was 23 at the time. <laughs> and. I never, it's not something I talk about a lot, but um, one of the reasons I chose to come to Chicago, out of a, a very great many reasons, was this, there, there was this woman who uh, uh, lived here, and I was hoping that, you know, if I was here doing the Lord's work, of course, that maybe that, that would work out. Uh, and so, I'm going to put it out like, she was only like 20% of the reason, or something like that. But the plan was I was going to come here, and you know, we had been talking. I was like, I'm, I'm coming to Chicago. And she's like, great, I'll show you around. Uh, as I, I think when I got off the plane from LA, I pulled out my iPhone 3G, I think, at the time. And I had, there's this email that's like, hey, I decided randomly to just fly to New York and go visit my friend, so I'm not in Chicago. And I was like, you know, F you, blah, blah. <laughs> so basically, I, I, you know, the trip started off very terribly for me. And um, it was March, I think. I'm, it was like 40 degrees. I've never experienced this before. I had a, a very ill-suited coat for it. Um, it was one of the most, oh, and I got stuck in this dorm that was, the room was about the size of this table. Nothing in it except just a sad bed and a little desk. I'm staring out the window, and it's dark and gray, and the tree is dead. Um, and also, you have to remember, look, technology has changed a lot even with the beginning of the iPhone, right? Because now, if it was now, I'd be like, Tinder, 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 or like, whatever, right? Like, they didn't have any of that stuff back then. It was like email and a web browser and Facebook or something. So it's not like I, didn't, I couldn't really like be on my phone in the way that we are now, constantly checking stuff. And I'm also not like Neil, who is the kind of person who would go visit. I think he actually did this when he came to prospective students. They like, go visit this, like, look around, like, explore things. Like, <laughs> holy shit, like, you know. I'm more of like the, I'm going to sit in this room. <laughs> and so I just remember just the sense of isolation and boredom, like the most intense kind of, feeling of disconnectedness for myself in that little sad dorm room thing. Um, people would occasionally like walk by sounding like they're like having a great time. <laughs> and I'd be like, eh. <laughs> At the University of Chicago. Yeah, I know. I mean, later I realized that probably wasn't the case. But so I, and I don't have a, I don't have like a conclusion in that story where it's like, and then I realized in that room that God was with me. Like, it doesn't work like that, you know. But that's a story I think about a lot when I remember or I think about what it is to sort of be alone and deal with these things. Again, you know, with the stuff with this woman, like, that was all there. And I just, it was a very, I just was such an unsettling 
space for myself, one that I can't imagine being in today because I could so easily not be in. I mean, I don't think they had podcasts back then, you know, like um, 2009 is like ancient history. Oh, well, they weren't hot. They weren't hot, you know. So does anybody have um, maybe a story along those lines or if you want to just say something in general, that's fine too.